This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. If it, guys, if it's if it's just us, we'll, we'll take it on the road. All right, good. Maybe we'll get we'll get the brass lights and three other people. Okay, let's do it. Oh yeah, we could do that. Closing kavana. Let's just sing, and then if nobody else comes, then. Nine, 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 nine,
All right. Hi, everyone. How you doing? Okay. Thank you for making it so that it's not just my kids here at this hour, because I was going to make them sit through the whole shiur anyway. So it's just less awkward now that there are other people here, too. Um, and by the way, Eva just got off a plane from Israel at 6 a.m. today. She is still here. So, um, all right. So, um, I would, I mean, if folks can come close if you'd like, um, what a night. What a night. Um, we just came from the most extraordinary session um, for those who were in this room. Um, and I just, I feel so, I feel like we were given such a gift tonight. Um, Rabbi Panitz engaged in Torah study with three um, recent converts to Judaism, and, and what a blessing. Um, so thank you uh, for, for those of you who've been with us uh, for the last several hours. Okay, here's what I want to do. Um, we're going to hand out, a, we're going to hand out a text, and thank you. This was, look how ambitious I was, how many people I thought would still be here, maybe. <laughs> At the last hour, you know, I always get the final slot, so it depends, year to year. Okay, so I want us to think about, in this conversation about revelation and rece the receiving of Torah, who, who we're actually talking about. Who is receiving Torah? What is our circle of care and concern? And how far does it extend? And so we're going to start by looking at a Mishnah that comes from Masechet Ta'anit. Mishnah was codified um, in the year two, right around the year 220 CE, um, ancient compendium of Jewish law. And we're going to look at this text, um, and I want to see what we can learn from what the Mishnah offers us. And by the way, if, if any of our folks who are um, from home, do we still have any people from home with us? Oh, yes, we do. Okay, hello, people from home. Um, we learned this text, but in a different way in the, on the east side uh, a couple weeks ago. So east siders, um, I, uh, I, I hope you'll stick around so that you can see it this way too. Um, we're asking a different, a slightly different question tonight. Okay, so I'm going to introduce the first paragraph, and then I'm going to ask us to look at the second paragraph in Chavruta. Uh, the first paragraph reads the following, and for people who are at home, we're at Mishnah Ta'anit, chapter 3, verse, uh, Mishnah, the 5th and 6th Mishnayot. For the following calamities, they cry out in every place. Let me, by the way, this come, the translation comes from Safaria, an incredible online resource for learning. The, the words in bold are the actual translation. The words that are not in bold come from Adin Steinsaltz, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz. This is a filling in of what the, what the interpretation, this is an interpretation, okay? So um, that's true for the, you'll see that throughout in the, both the mission and the Gemara. Okay. 
Um, I believe it's Steinsaltz also in the Mishnah. I know it's Steinsaltz in the Gemara. Um, but in any case, it, the, the bold is the translation. The non-bold is the interpretation. For the following calamities, they cry out in every place for blight, for mildew, for locusts, for caterpillars, a type of locust that comes in large swarms and descends upon a certain place, for dangerous beasts that have entered a town, and for the sword, for example, legions of an invading army. The reason that they cry out about these misfortunes in every place is because these are calamities that spread, okay? Mipnei shehi makah mehalechet. Mipnei shehi makah mehalechet. It's uh, their whole theme, these makot. They will move, they will spread, they will walk. Okay, so what do we first notice about um, why we're crying out in this place? What do we cry out for and why are we crying out? So it's really late. So people are going to have to like get really, you're going to have to, we're going to have to wake ourselves up here. It's not like you just got married three days ago. I don't know what you're so tired about. Okay, so (laughs) for the folks at home, she did just get married three days ago. Okay, not three. Four days, okay. <laughs> okay, you got. You should be well rested. Okay, so what are, what are, what's the nature of the things that make us cry out, and why are we crying out for those things? What? Well, like what? Why? Because okay, but say what? What does it mean that it spreads? Can you just say it in like a, a more in a different language than the text uses here? It takes over. So there's some. There are some like nefarious or insidious or toxic elements that could enter an ecosystem and they will spread and take over a larger ecosystem. If we don't, if we don't what? Contain them somehow? Is the thinking here that if we cry out, we'll be able to contain the spread of this toxic element? Is that what folks are getting from this? Why are we crying out when they're caterpillars, people? Okay, so it could be to warn people. Was that Joe? Who's that? Yes. We could be crying out to warn people that there are very scary caterpillars on the 1500 block of Point View and you don't want to go near there, okay? We could be that we could be crying out in order to warn people. Why else might we be crying out about the caterpillars? What did you say? Because who's out of control? The people who are crying? Okay, says my husband of 26 years today, or I should say yesterday as of 25 minutes ago, um, you're crying out because you're out of control, right? Because something has happened. There are caterpillars everywhere. You don't know what to do about it. And so you actually just cry out, right? From, it's like an, emo, it's an emotional output. Rabbi Silver. Because they're hungry? What? So we're in pain, right? And I think this is connected to what David is suggesting. We're crying out because we are in anguish, right? It is an emotional response to, to an anguish that's happening in the population that directly impacts us, maybe our food supply, maybe our emotional state, 
it's scary. There's something very scary and dangerous happening, and this is our emotional response. Did you have a comment, Sasha? It's beyond our control. Something is out of control, and when you're out of control, the best thing to do is cry really loudly, right? It's not the way I want it to be. It's not just descriptive, it's prescriptive. You should, you should just go cry about it for a little while. Wait. Okay, so is this just a fear-based response? Thank you, Suze. Yes, Matt. It's reaching out to others. It seems to me that, that you're saying it, it can spread. So if I cry, others are going to hear me. The and then what will they do when they hear you? Okay, Matt, let's take Matt's idea for a moment. If we cry out, other people will hear us, and what's our hope that will happen when other people hear us crying out because of the scary caterpillars? What? They can come and help us. Yeah? Any other ideas? Yes? Rabbi Lynn and then Brianna? Okay, so maybe they will come and sit with us because we have been invaded by an army of caterpillars and it's very scary and they're going to come sit with us so that we're not alone as we engage in this uh this invading army and, and we're plus we're dealing with the mockery of the world because people are like why are you crying it's caterpillars and then we're like at least we have our friends with us who understand right okay brianna Okay, we could be warning the rest of the world that we are seeing something and we want other people to know about it because it soon might also happen to them, right? Maybe that's what it means when it says, this is going to move. Right now, it's on my block. Hey, friends. Hello, welcome. So we're looking at the Mishnah from Ta'anit and we'll have some source sheets sent over to you. Okay. Okay, Suze is starting to challenge the premise of the, not the premise of the Mishnah, but some of the details offered. Maybe we're not talking about caterpillars. What would we be talking about, like, say, in America, 2023? What, what's the equivalent of a very scary caterpillar from the Mishnaic times? What? Coronavirus? Okay, could be coronavirus. Like, it's in Westchester. Do you remember that? You remember when it was in Westchester? Right? Like it made it to the United States and we're crying out. Why? To, to war, we're scared. We're scared. We don't want to be alone. Like you were in, imagine we're in Westchester now, okay? We're, the, the coronavirus has made it to us and we're crying out because we're scared, because we don't want to be alone, and also because we want to warn the rest of the country, this thing is real, it's made it to my town, it could make it to yours. That's good. What else, are, what else in America, 2023, could it be? Wait, wait, hold on. Oh, okay, Can, who's answering this? Suze? Okay, it could be the Proud Boys, right? Like there is an ideological extremism that has entered our social and political culture that threatens to do great harm, take it seriously, folks. I have seen it up front. I was there when it happened. You need to know what I saw, right? But by the way, 
I'm not making any analogies to Proud Boys, okay? I'm, I'm reading and listening to this incredible book by Jonathan Friedland, who's a journalist uh, from The Guardian. It's called The Escape Artist. Did anyone read this book? This book is incredible. This guy, he does, he does extraordinary research and, and writes in this really compelling journalistic way about a young guy who was 19 when he landed in Auschwitz-Birkenau and he escapes Auschwitz. And he, the, somehow he gets uh, incredible archives. The guy goes on to live a long life. He tells his own story, but then Jonathan Friedland like really does all of the research and he tells the story. But do you know what the breaking point was for him or the turning point was for this guy, Walter, when he was in Auschwitz? And he witnessed all kinds of horrors, experienced incredible loss. The breaking point was when he realized that even until the moment that the doors of the gas chamber slammed shut, people still believed that they were taking a shower. People still, even when all evidence was to the contrary, even when they saw that nobody ever came out of the shower, even when they saw truckloads of bodies, they believed that they were taking a shower because they wanted to believe that this lie that was being told. And the, what drove him to escape was that he needed to tell the truth because he needed to warn the world. He believed that if only people knew the truth, if he cried out, that the whole world would hear and people would do something about it. They would stand in solidarity. They would bomb the train tracks. They would do something to protect, to, to, st to stop the madness from happening. Okay, read the, I re highly recommend this book. Yes, Teresa. The Escape Artist, it's called by Jonathan Friedland. Okay, so Teresa's argument is these are all controllable forces, and if we cried out, we could do something about them. Okay, I'm not, I'm not sure I agree about hurricanes, but we'll come back to that in a minute, because I think our folks in the back are going to say something about hurricanes. Hello. Hello. Okay, nothing about hurricanes. Sorry to disappoint. Yes, hi, I'm Stephanie. Nice to meet you all. So what about those people who also feel that it is their responsibility to cry out about their version of a truth that maybe perhaps is not, in fact... <laughs> The truth, like the like the idea that Amanda Gorman's the hill we you know climb what? That's a, a might confuse very children. Wild example that is completely one hundred percent what I'm right. talking about. Okay, okay. So you raise a good question, and I'm gonna park. I'm gonna put it in the parking lot for a moment. Sounds but good. when people feel this feverish need to cry out against a dangerous force in the culture, what if the force that they're crying out against is is you? Right. What if it's us? Then what? So th I think that's a very I think that's a very good point to raise. Um, Payam. Nothing left to do. We cry. I mean, Neruda Great. had a poem: the children cry, and he couldn't come up with a metaphor, so he just wrote the children cry, the children cry, the children. 
Okay. Payam saying something similar to what David and Rabbi Silver said, which is sometimes we just need to express ourselves when we're feeling in immense fear or we're just at a total loss and the tears actually flow. Um, thank you for that. Esra, last comment for now. Going back to the text. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Hi, Esra. Going back to the text, um, maybe this theme of the nature of the calamity is one that doesn't discriminate, that everyone suffers equally from mildew. It doesn't matter if you have, uh -huh. may, maybe, I don't know, maybe if you have more money, you don't have mildew. But, but if, if it's insidious enough and you're not paying attention, you know, everyone's going to have to deal with this. And so it really brings everyone to their knees because at some point there's, a, there's something so viscerally vile that every human is going to cry out in a, in a very vulnerable way from this. That's, and that's so great. it doesn't matter the color of your skin or your politics or whatever. Nobody you will, will be also free of suffer. this threat. Yeah. That's great. I, by the way, I always, I think very often about this, some very smart person said early on in COVID that everyone kept saying, we're all in the same boat. It's the great equalizer. And some very smart person, I don't know who said, um, we are not all in the same boat, friends. We're all in the same storm, but we are in very different boats in this storm. And I think about that all the time. And, but the same, I think the same applies here. Um, these threats will impact different people differently, right? People with resources will not, be, will not be devastated by the caterpillars. They might be harmed, but they won't be devastated. But your point remains that this will touch everybody in some profound way. Right, COVID touched everybody, whether we were resourced or not resourced. It touched everybody. Okay, I'm going to ask you to do something. We're going to have we're going to do this for literally three or four minutes. Read the second paragraph of this Mishnah with somebody who's right next to you, and let's make this Beit Midrash sing like a Beit Midrash. Do you know what I mean by that? It means we're going to read it out loud. You can read it either in Hebrew or in English. Your choice. You can skip the non-bolded words or you can read them if you want to hear someone's interpretation. But I want to make sure that everybody in here has somebody to read with. And so let's, uh, let's go. Let's see what it, what it adds to our understanding. Okay, I'm pulling us back. Who can, who can offer in, in one, uh, like who can tell us what's going on here? Somebody brave. Yes, Irv, you got it? Don't wait until a child's been eaten to do the right thing, right? It, so this might be reflecting on the first pair, on the first Mishnah by saying, don't wait, but issue the warning so that you can save the children. Okay, that's good. Yes, do you have a comment? Uh, I was just going to say that it's, it's, it's kind of like that reminiscent of, of early COVID, the flatten the curve. It's like take the preventative measures before it gets worse. Okay, and that's very empowering, by the way. There is something that you can do if you catch it early enough that you can stop it in its tracks. It does make me want to go back to the question that Suze had me ask earlier, which is, in America, in the year 2023, aside from COVID, what else? Like, okay, so let's just do a little popcorn here. Like, what? Like the anti-trans legislations, right? What? MAGA. Anyone think about like gun violence in our, I, what? Climate devastation, right? Like when you see a hint of these dangerous toxic elements emerging in a society, you do something, 
You can't do nothing, you do something. Now in this case, an incident occurred, and that incident was that in the town of Eshkelon, has anyone been to Eshkelon? Okay, in the town of Eshkelon, a little bit of blight was found. Not a lot of blight, a little teeny little bit of blight, enough to fill the mouth of one oven, okay? A little bit of like, let's say the blight is like some kind of toxic mold or something. And what happens? The Zikanim, the elders from Jerusalem, come down. As Rabbi Tzadok and I just, just noticed from the language, they're in Jerusalem holding court. They all go home to their hometowns and they declare a fast, right? There, there's a tiny little bit of blight in Eshkelon. That's a big deal, when they declare a fast throughout the entire Eretz Yisrael, throughout the entire land. Why? According to, according to the commentary here, the blight spreads quickly, okay? I'm going to ask you to put, to put a fine point on that for us in just a moment. Furthermore, they decreed a fast because wolves had eaten two children in the Transjordan. Oh, no, no. Actually, Rav Yossi says, don't worry. They didn't actually eat the children. They just, we saw wolves there. And when you see wolves, you think those wolves could eat two children. So we need to do whatever we can do. Okay. Are they fasting throughout all the land of Eretz Yisrael in order to, for self-protection? Is that why they're fasting? Because some of the things we've said is self-protection, like you're in Westchester and you're sounding the warning. Everybody, COVID's real. Wash your hands, Right because it could come to you. Is it self-protection or is it something else? Rabbi Miraf. I would, I, yeah, I think it's to protect workers. You know, they were talking about clergy who sat in the street to get attention to a cause that wasn't their own, but their hearts led them to take a stance to help people that were in peril. That's interesting. So it might be that it's not to protect ourselves, but it's to protect the protectors. Remember when everybody was banging the um, pots and pans at 7 p.m. to thank the, the first responders and the, the nurses and doctors? Like, we're, if you, people don't take care of themselves, the people who are going to have to take care of them are going to die. So it's not just about me protecting myself. It's about me protecting all the good doctors and nurses of Westchester. Okay. Matt? Um, what I'm thinking is, is Jonah. The other Westchester, the New York one. Yeah. What I'm thinking is, is Jonah, where Jonah comes in and says, God doesn't like you, you better put on the... Yeah. And the, apparently they thought that would God would say, oh, you're fasting, I'll get rid of the blight. I, I assume that's what... Is that actually like... <laughs> Do they actually believe that if they fast, that God will end the blight, or God will end the wolves, or God will end the caterpillars? Do they actually believe that? That's a question. Britt. Um, so, um, I, was saying, I was saying that I say all the time, if I don't know what to do, um, go to bed. doesn't matter where I go to bed or who I go to bed with, just go to bed. And I, and what, I, and what that means... And I think it's very similar to a, the, a blight or seeing wolves is the idea is you just stop, go full stop, stop. and allow whatever needs to reset to reset. Okay. And then it, maybe it's God, maybe it's a good idea will come to you. Maybe you'll just know, like drink more water, right? Or whatever, but just stop. Don't try to fix it. Okay. Right? Um, speaking of, of Brit going to bed with whoever or whatever... Um, 
happens to be present in the moment, we're going to go on to the Gemara really quickly. So, <laughs> but let me, but let me just put, let me just put a, a fine point on this for one moment. The rabbis seem very clearly to be saying in Mishnah Ta'anit 3.6 that when there was even so much as a little bit of blight in Eshkelon, they stopped everything and everyone fasted. It is not easy to fast, right? They stopped everything all across the land. When there was so much as two children eaten by a wolf, they stopped everything. Oh, no, no, no. They weren't even eaten. We just saw a wolf that might harm a child. The day after, a year after Uvalde, I just want to ask us to think about what it means to imagine a society in which even a hint of a possibility of two children being in danger makes us stop everything and figure out how to sound the alarm nationally, not only in the place where the pain exists in that moment, but across the nation. Now, if you look at the Gemara, and we're now in, for those who are following us from afar, I'm looking at the Gemara from Ta'anit 11a. And if you're following in Safaria, it's about 3 to 11, okay, um, in the Safaria notation. So now Rav Yehuda says, that Rav says, that anybody who has food, you have food for yourself, but nevertheless, you make yourself go hungry in years of famine will be saved from an unusual death. So I want you to just imagine this scenario for a moment, then we'll get to Brit. I want you to think about this. People are hungry. They're hurting. They're dying from hunger. There is uh, a famine across the land, but you're fine. Whether you're fine because you inherited wealth or because you're just smarter than everybody else around you or because you just got lucky, you're fine. You have enough food to eat, but everyone around you is suffering in this famine. What the Gemara seems to be indicating is that the human way to respond to this scenario is what? To, to go hungry, right? I wouldn't have translated as starves himself because the words are, I mean, you, to go hungry. You don't eat a feast when everyone around you is starving. Why not, folks? Why do you not eat a feast when everyone around you is starving? Because it's just rude. It, it's just rude, right? They, they are not going to be any better off if you're also starving. But it's disgusting. You don't make a feast when everybody's suffering like that. That's not human. You're, some part of you is, is getting lost here. Okay, but then look at what Rach Lakish says. Rach Lakish says you can't have sex during years of famine. You cannot have conjugal relations in the years of famine now, the commentator here, uh, Rabbi Adin Steinsold, says, so that children won't be born during those difficult years. I wonder if we agree with that commentary. Is there any other reason? Okay, so you understand the reason that Steinsold says is there's so much suffering all around. If you have a child into this suffering, that child will inevitably suffer. I have had many conversations with people in our community who have come to say, I don't want to have children because of climate devastation and gun violence. And I'm, I just don't think it's, it's uh, ethical to bring children into the world. So it seems like Steinsaltz is reading that as the... Have you heard that? Have you felt that? So I think Steinsaltz is arguing that that's the reason why Reish Lakish is saying you should not have sex during years of famine. Reish Lakish, by the way, had a very healthy libido, one could say. We know from other stories. He was... He had a... Um, he had a healthy libido. <laughs> okay, so 
or <laughs> okay. So, so what other reason though might might we not want to have sex during a time of famine? What? What? Any other ideas before Sue's? I'm going to come to Sue's in a sec. Any other ideas? Because. Have we, have we not heard from somebody? Why should you not have sex, according to Rish Lakish, in a time of famine? Suze. Oh. Because you never know Okay. Okay. That's possible. There might be some scientific explanation. I'm looking for more of an emotional one. That's a good. That maybe the. Okay. Wait, what? <laughs> you can't have a sandwich afterwards, she said. Okay. <laughs> um, what? Any other? Any other reasons? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, it's really distracting. It's going to distract you from the pain. And if the point of not feasting is that you don't want to really be distracted from your neighbor's emotional state, then all the more so you shouldn't be having sex because the sex is going to distract you. And suddenly you're not thinking about your poor neighbor and how you need to do everything in your power to help your neighbor get food because you're thinking about other things. Okay. Now, there is a citation here. Rachel Lakish derives this from actually directly from Torah, from Genesis chapter 41, verse 50. The verse says, and to Joseph were born two sons before the year of famine came. Now, our rabbis were very careful readers of the text, and they said, why do we need to know that Joseph's two sons were born before the famine? That's an unnecessary detail for the Torah to offer us, right? Why does the Torah have to say it? And, and the answer they say is because basically he would never have had children during a time of famine because it would have been disrespectful. It wouldn't have been okay. So there's so many people suffering all around him in Egypt and beyond. So you just don't have sex. And our forefather, Joseph, is one of the people who taught us this. Okay. There's a problem, though. And now you can put down your sheet for a second. There's a problem. I'll tell you two problems, actually. One, actually, I learned from uh, my friend Daniel Sokatch, who you remember. Um, he's one of the founders of Ikar. He became really good friends with one of the surviving, one of the survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And one day, this old guy in Warsaw tells my friend, he says, you know what we used to do in the sewers at night during the uprising in between battles? You know what we used to do? And Daniel said, I don't know, what did you used to do? And he said, we were 18, 19, 20 years old down there. We were all going to die. What do you think we were doing? Okay, so you will never think of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising the same again. I'm just sharing with you because I don't want to be alone there. That's problem number one. Problem number two is a woman named Yocheved, who is the mother of a man named Moshe. Yochavet was born on the way from Canaan, from the land of Israel, into Egypt. Now, do you remember why the Israelites, why the brothers came into Egypt? They were starving. It was a famine, right? Yochavet, it had been a famine already for some years. Yochavet was born on the way in, which means that Levi, her father, as in jo one of Joseph's brothers, Levi, what did he do during a famine? 
Okay, so how do we reconcile this? Because we're supposed to learn this big lesson that we're not supposed to behave this way during these kind of times. But then one of our own forefathers, and by the way, not just anyone, the one I named my son after, and also, you know, the one who holds many of the priestly duties, that person did something that reflects disrespect, disconnection, lack of solidarity with others. How do we reconcile this? Any idea? Think of the Warsaw Ghetto Fighters. Think of Levy. And say more, David. Even in terrible times, the human will to survive and to thrive still persists. So one of the interpretations that I heard many years ago from Rabbi Yosef Konevsky, a great teacher of Torah, um, just down here at B'nai David in, in L.A., what he brought is this. Um, he cited a rabbi who cited this. That when we are in the midst of the darkness ourselves, the deprivation is unnecessary because we're already deprived. They all knew they were going to die, right? They all thought that they were going to die. Levi did not need to be reminded of the famine. He was living the famine. So if that's true, and the prohibition on feasting and sex and all the other good things in life exists in a time of famine, but not directly applies to the people who are experiencing the worst of it, then what is the point of crying out or fasting in, in, in dark times? Are you going to address this or something else? Okay, you got it, Pam. It's who's, causing the, it's who's causing the famine, right? I mean, the Jews didn't cause the famine in the Warsaw Ghetto. The people in Warsaw didn't want them to have children. It's the same story with Moses. So that is an act of rebellion. But this is talking about if the Jews themselves are somehow the cause of the famine, it's, then, it, then it isn't an act of rebellion. It's an act of gluttony. So okay, so, so I think what you and David are saying is connected, that literally engaging in life and falling in love and whatever they were doing down there in those years, they, those days, they had every right to do it. In fact, the act itself is an act of rebellion against the world as it is. Okay, I'm asking a question though, because when we looked at the beginning, when we were looking at these Mishnayot, we were trying to understand why are we fasting and why are we crying out? And many of the answers that we came up with were about self-protection, right? Because that Makkah is mehalechet, it's going gonna, it's gonna to move and it's going to spread. And if it's in Westchester, it's going to hit San Francisco. And you know when it hits San Francisco, it's going to hit Los Angeles. So we're crying out to, as a form of self-protection. But when you look at the story of Levi and Yochevet, and the idea that when you're living in the darkness yourself, you don't need the same kind of layers of protection between, you know, the behaviors and, and, and the people next to you because you yourself are experiencing it every day. It seems that it's pointing not to self-protection, but it's pointing to something else. Yeah, who said that? Yeah, thank you. It, it's solidarity, right? That the reason that we do all of this goes back to what I think Joe Pateski said in the beginning, which is, did you say this or did Rabbi Silver say this? Or did Len Miroff say, Rabbi Len say this? The reason that we do this is because our fellow humans are suffering. And we have a tendency when we're okay to not think about our fellow humans who are suffering because, because they're suffering 
turns us upside down. We don't want to be, we, we don't want to be not okay, even in our minds, when we're fine, when we have food in our cupboard. And, and yet, the rabbis seem to be saying that that is part of what it means to be a human. Part of what it means to be human is you don't have a feast when your neighbor is starving to death. It's called empathy. It's called solidarity. Now, I just, the, look, the hour is late, and we've been studying for hours together. I, I want us to think just for a moment as we close about the connection between this idea and standing at the base of Sinai and accepting Torah, or standing in a Jewish community in LA in 2023 and accepting Torah. What does it mean to us about who is receiving Torah and who our Torah actually instructs us with regards to? Who, who and what are we called to be right now? So there, there are interpretations that come from, from the book of Exodus that when the people stood at the base of Sinai, they were like one people. They were united as one. Uh, they, were, they were one people with one heart. We don't need to even give them out. Oh, <laughs> that, they were, that they were like one people with one heart. But, but, there, but there's something that interesting that happens with tribalism when you have a tribe, like our people did in the desert and like we do now. The, um, the biologists tell us and the neuropsychologists tell us that once you find yourself in a tribe and there's something so powerful about being in a tribe, the deeper your connection to the others in your tribe, necessarily the, the greater your antipathy toward people outside your tribe. Uh, we all know this because we felt it, but think about this. Science proves what we know in our hearts. The more strongly connected we are to our own tribes, not only do we feel less strongly toward others, but we actually, we hate those guys. They're not in our tribe. They're in the other tribe. They're in the other synagogue, right? <laughs> or they're in the other religion, or they're in the other camp, the other political camp, right? And what the tradition is saying to us is, be careful in this moment of the most profound sense of unity as a community that our people ever existed, which is when we stood at the base of Sinai and we were like one person with one heart, because that is a powerful, intoxicating, wonderful, amazing thing. We should seek out our tribes. We need our tribes. We need to belong to our tribes, but be careful because the deeper we go into our tribes, the worse our relationships will be with everybody else. The less likely we will be to give a damn if our neighbor is in a famine, as long as we have food in our own cupboards. If the shooting is in Texas, as long as we have good gun laws in California. Do you understand what I'm saying? On this holy night, I want to ask us to consider that as much as we are celebrating the power of this beautiful Jewish tribe and this incredible gift of Torah that's given to this tribe, that we're also being warned to be careful to remember to extend our hearts not only to each other, but actually to everybody outside of our tribe as well. That's really hard to do. It, when you're in Jerusalem on Shavuot, and I suspect some of you may have spent... Shavuot in Jerusalem, yes? Any of you? 
the most amazing thing happens. You're studying in all these little shuls and homes all around Yerushalayim. And then like the sun is starting to rise and people just pour out into the streets and all these people from all different kinds of Jewish backgrounds come together. And for a moment before they start like throwing stuff at the Egal Minion at the Kotel, for a moment you're like, oh my God, it's like we're standing again at Sinai. Like all of us in all of our differences, it's so beautiful, it's so holy. That is something we should strive for, we should fight for that feeling. And let us never forget that the stronger we have that feeling toward each other, the more we have to invest, even by denying or depriving ourselves of some of that natural instinctive uh, yearning for our, to fulfill our own needs, the more we have to invest in reaching out beyond our tribe and, and working to really create the beloved community, not only inside, but also for everybody. With that... I'm going to invite us all to please rise. We're going to close with a nigun. This was an incredible night of learning. I have so much gratitude to our amazing team, to Michael and Nick, who are still here late night, to Morgan and Elise, to, to our rabbis and our teachers. Let's close with a nigun. Even, even uh, before you run out to the street, we'll do, a, we'll do a short one, and then we'll take the spirit. I want to invite you to take one thing that you heard or that you learned or that inspired you, and let's just bring it with us into this, uh, into this holy moment so that it can hopefully have a reverberative effect for us in the days ahead. I'm closing with one last word, which I forgot to say. Where were the wolves and the children? Do you remember? In the Transjordan, on the other side. It wasn't even in our land. It was on the other side, right? Like the text is really saying, take this seriously. That's our problem too. That's our business too. And when we, when we together embrace the suffering, we together will embrace the redemption. All right. Chag Sameach, folks. Shabbat morning, Adikar, 9.30 a.m. If folks don't mind, please grab your trash and your papers and help us. And let's fold up some chairs and put them against the wall. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone.
Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.